This podcast is made possible by Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, this was your idea. I'm really curious about where this conversation goes today because all of this stuff was like candy as I prepared for it. Yeah, you know, we're getting back to the basics today. You know, how do you value a stock? Now, that's a stock conversation, but stocks make up index funds, which make up ETFs. And a big wing of ETFs are called smart beta, which are ETFs that sort of use metrics that an active manager would use, price to earnings, price to book, dividends, et cetera. And within there, there's all kinds of variations. So in a way, it's active, even though it uses an index. And so there's an ETF that launched recently called the Sparkline Intangible Value ETF. ITAN is the ticker. Um, And this uses the intangible value, which this person claims is a new factor. The reason it caught my attention is I was at the Democratized Quant event, uh, I don't know, six months ago, which Wes Gray from Alpha Architect puts on. And I saw this guy, Kai Wu, debate Cliff Asnes who is like giant in the quant world. I mean, he's like heavyweight A-lister, right? And Kai has this ETF, it's indie. And it was sort of like a David and Goliath debate, no offense. But Cliff was had, had met his match here. I thought Kai made some very good arguments. I was more on his side by the end of the debate. Cliff was a good sport. It was a great discussion. I love the quants. They do a very academic type of rigorous debate when they have events. And I like that. It was two sides presented. And I thought, we got to get this guy on because not only is intangible value interesting, and people should know what that means, but when you think of smart beta ETFs, like a value ETF, many of them use price to book. Well, what does that mean? What is book value? Well, a lot of the book values are old. They don't use things like the brand. They use like, you know, how much actual literal capital goods the company owns. And so they don't use real estate. So there's this huge debate in the quant world on how to actually define price the book. And that is a major pillar of how you define value. So if you're shopping for a value ETF or value manager, this stuff is important to know. Joining us, Kai Wu, who's the founder, chief investment officer of Sparkline Capital, as well as Chris Kane, who's a quant analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. This time on Trillions, the intangibles. Kai, Chris, welcome to Trillions. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Okay, Kai, what is intangible value? So an intangible asset is, you know, as Eric was saying, anything that's not your kind of factories, your cash, your property. It's at Sparkline, we have four pillars of intangibles. We talk about intellectual property, brand equity, human capital, and network effects. So again, IP, human capital, brand, network effects. And these assets are becoming more and more important um, for companies today. Why uh, is value investing not capturing this? So when you think about value investing, it was really popularized in the 1930s with uh, Ben Graham's security analysis book. And you go back to the 30s, right? The economy was fully industrial. The big companies were railroads and textile mills. And as a result, uh, you know, these sorts of intangibles didn't really matter too much. But today, the biggest companies are you know, Apple, Facebook, um, firms for whom their book value does not actually, is not actually required to produce earnings. And so 
you know, think about, you know, Apple, for example, right? It's their brand. It's their, the network effects around the iPhone, iOS ecosystem. It's the human capital and IP around, you know, their internal processors and such that allow them to earn such fat profit margins. Why hadn't this been captured in an ETF until yours? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, there, there have been attempts to, um, to, to kind of capture some of the um, um, intangible assets using accounting-based metrics. So one of, the, one of the weird anomalies within um, the way accounting works, like gap accounting, is that they allow uh, for the capitalization of physical capex, but not intangible assets. Right. So there are there have been attempts to reverse that by saying, all right, you're going to spend one hundred million dollars building a building a factory that gets capitalized. You're going to spend one million dollars doing R&D to develop a patent that gets capitalized. And in doing so, you can kind of create a more holistic version of book value that's a little bit better. Um, but what we found here at, at Sparkline is that, you know, that only takes you so far because, again, like the, the link between the, the money you put into R&D and what you get out is, is super wide. So what we like to do here is, is to focus instead on the actual um, products, the actual outputs, you know, what patents do you actually get, how strong is the brand you actually build through your advertising efforts. Um, and I think that's kind of a novel and unique approach that really only became available with the advent of, you know, unstructured data and natural language processing, which we'll get into in a bit. So it, is your... Is your fund, uh, it isn't a value ETF that actually just uses this, tweaks this one part. It's more of let's go after the companies with the highest intangible value. Again, that's different than let's do a traditional value ETF, but let's correct how we define price the book. Right? Yours is let's go after these stocks that are high in intangible value, right? Yeah. And I think one important thing to to mention is that it's not like we're going to go after the companies with simply the most total overall innovative patents, let's say. Because then that would just map to large cap names, right? What we care about is how much as a shareholder you get per dollar invested, right? So it's very similar to like a dividend yield or like an earnings yield. Um, so for each dollar invest, how many you know PhDs do I get as an investor? How many you know Twitter followers do I get? Um, and so these are kind of proxies for intangible assets. But again, the key just being that they're they're price based, um, very similar to price to book, but you know using kind of a more expansive set of, uh, of variables. And let's bring in Chris Kane here because Chris spends all day looking at this quantitative data. He has um, builds indices. And I was curious, Chris, you know, sort of your take on this. And you have to have a price the book mm-hmm. uh, in your metrics mm-hmm. and how you define that. And just curious to get your, uh, you know, how you've considered this for your work. Sure, Kai. I mean, I, I you know, I love this concept. You know, when I go to, uh, you know, customers and speak to them about value investing, you know, a lot of the feedback I get is, well, these are old companies. This is an old way to do it. You know, this is kind of like anti-innovation. And, you know, I don't have to tell everyone, you know, that we're kind of living through a golden age of innovation in many ways. You look at the Qs, you look at ARKK, et cetera. So, you know, do you, you know, do you, um, but the what really always held me back from those type of funds is like they're anti-factor, right? They're very high vol. They're very expensive. So do you view, um, you know, your, your fund more like a value tilt um, or you know, innovation tilt, but without those like bad factor uh, uh, weightings. Yeah, I think that that's a very fair way of, of characterizing the strategy, right? It's it's in an innovation fund without the kind of baggage. Where mm-hmm. as an investor, you don't have to sacrifice your value exposure or your quality exposure mm-hmm. um, by going into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so interesting. So would you consider this like? I mean, would you consider it more like a growth fund or like a traditional value fund, or would you consider it? completely different and separate and distinct. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't love the whole value versus growth dichotomy. I don't think it's it's fair to say you have to be either one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Warren Buffett has talked about this as well as, you know, this kind of being a, a false construction. 
Um, the way I would think about it is a traditional value ETF, right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to look for uh, stocks with low price to book ratios. In other words, book value is a proxy for tangible capital. So they're going to look within the tangible economy, the old economy, as you point out, industrials, banks, uh, energy materials, and find the cheapest names, which is a totally valid thing to do. But you know, obviously, you know, as we move forward in time with innovation, AI, etc., this is becoming a vanishingly small part of the stock market. So what we're trying to do with the intangible value ETF is the same exact thing. We're looking for cheap stocks, but relative not to tangible but intangible capital, which ends up mapping to consumer brands, to you know, tech platforms, um, you know, life sciences companies, um, and um, you know, services businesses. So it's kind of the same concept, but applied to the other half, so to speak, of the stock market. Support for this podcast is made possible by Invesco QQQ. A quarter century ago, Invesco QQQ reimagined how people invest by providing access to the most innovative companies in the NASDAQ 100, all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. So what's on the horizon for the next 25 years? See for yourself. Tap into the companies remaking the future. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So is what you're saying part of the reason that traditional value investing just sort of gets punched in the face all the time and just lags for uh, we're, we're, we're 15 years at this point? I had a nice little run in 2022, I believe, uh, but now it's kind of back in the gutter. Um, is that why traditional value doesn't ever seem to have uh, like a true regime takeover? And at the same time, Every time you think something's coming back, like small caps or international, the Qs just wakes up and says, uh-uh, I'm going to run over you again. And again. Er- again. Run away and again. It. Like Marshall Lynch, when he was talking about running people over, he's like, I'm going to smash you in the, ma- in the mouth again and again and again and again. And then you're finally, I'm going to run over you. And then like he just talked about how he scores touchdowns. Anyway. <laughs> beast mode. <laughs> the, the Qs is in constant beast mode. It's beast mode. But is, that be- is intangible value the reason that that phenomenon exists again and again? Yeah, we've actually done some analysis on both the Qs and on ARKK. And what we did was we said, let's look at a factory-based framework. Right? Think about the Fama French model, which is, you know, there's the market, there's small cap, there's value, so on and so forth. 
and we added a sixth factor, which is the intangible value factor. And we looked at the holdings of both of these funds and then decomposed the returns. Say, can we retrospectively explain its performance by allocating to the six factors and then idiosyncratic risk, their alpha, right? Um, and what was quite interesting was both of these funds actually had a very positive loading on intangible value. And in fact, a lot of their outperformance relative to the S&P 500, the, the traditional stock market, has been due to this, um, you know, this, this exposure to innovative companies. That being said, there's also a lot of like, volatility around that, as you point out, Chris, um, due to, say, exposure to you know, cheap price-to-book stocks, which you know, did really well and then did really poorly and you know, kind of uh, cycles in these uh, re- really wide gyrations. And also, you know, especially in the case of the ARKK, the exposure to kind of earlier stage uh, unprofitable tech companies has been you know, kind of a negative contributor to their returns, just given that quality as a factor has just done so well the past two decades. I'm curious where the idea for the for for I10 came from was did you have the idea for the ETF or did you see a company and were like that is the poster child for intangible value I'm going to build a product around it well c- kind of both right i mean you you look at the the stock market you look at companies like you know McDonald's or Coca-Cola you know for whom brands are obviously cr- critical Apple uh, Google right and it just kind of makes sense that these are the things that should matter today and it's shocking that you know the the quantitative metrics that we've used for many many years are have not really evolved to to do that um, you know, I, I used to work for GMO, for Jeremy Grantham, who was a pioneer in developing a lot of systematic value strategies in the 70s and 80s. Um, and so I've always been thinking about this, this problem. And, you know, we're talking on an ETF podcast. Value ETFs are like a multi-hundred billion dollar, if not trillion dollar category. If you, you know, expand that to also include um, active managers following value strategies. So this is like a huge question and um, one which I feel like up until, you know, now, um, you know, just hasn't really been kind of satisfactory, literally like addressed. Um, we, you know, we need more research, more more work um, to understand the valuation of these names. And, and what problem did you have to solve in order to make this thing a reality? Well, this goes back to your question about like timing, like why now? Um, you know, the, the, the big problem is that accounting, uh, accounting statements don't really contain enough uh, insight into intangible assets. Um, and so you really need to go to unstructured data or alternative data Right. We're lucky that we live in an era now where there's just been exponential growth in big data. We have everything from, we use LinkedIn, Glassdoor, um, you know, job postings, patents, um, trademarks, all this information, you know, obviously just by first principles contains insight into intangible value. The challenge being that like, the information is kind of locked in there because you can't, you know, as a quant, just take like, a linear regression, run it over like, a 20,000 word document and get anything meaningful out. It's all just noise. And so that's why the advent of the transformer, natural language processing, you know, we were actually talking about this in 2020. We wrote a paper saying, you know, the, the killer app of AI within investing is the, the, the natural processing language, NLP, NLP um, you know, toolkit, which allows us to take unstructured data and kind of create structured factors, which can then be used as inputs into traditional valuation models. You know what this reminds me of, Joel? I'm going to go full metaphor here. Dark matter. Mm. You know, it's out there. You just can't see it. And it is. it kind of explains some Most things. Most of the universe is comprised of yes. it. Yes. Yeah. This is why the cues are the cues. It's this dark matter of intangible value because I'm looking at the holdings here. You know, Amazon, Meta, uh, Google, Cisco, Intel. Um, those are some of the firms driving the cues. Chris, you know, in your world, again, this d- concept of dark matter, you have to correctly capture factors, track them. How do you work this in? 
So I, you know, <clears throat> I read the white paper and a big fan. You know, I, I do view this as a different different type of factor. You know, I don't think in uh, as you did with your six factor model, I don't think you throw out per se traditional value, uh, as you showed in the paper. You know, the correlation between traditional value uh, and tangible value is pretty low. Uh, if I remember, actually, the correlation was higher to quality uh, with intangible value. Okay. So, uh, you know, to me, that's a value add. Um, I think you know it's. You know, the, the economy has changed. I mean, no one would say not, right? I mean, it's not plants anymore. It's not those you know, tangible things. So this is very logical. I view it as, you know, a separate factor, at least somewhat, and it can certainly add value to a multi-factor process. Yeah, but why why not just forget traditional value? Like, why even use old price the book? Why isn't the quant world much mm-hmm. more go, um, adjusting things for this? Because it does explain so much, and it just seems like if you're doing value investing using price the book, it's like using like a rotary phone or something. I, I don't understand. Like, why isn't this a bigger deal? Um, you know, that's a good, good question, <laughs> and I ask myself that each day. Um, but no, but look, we we're, we're all as researchers kind of building on the edifice of what's been what's come before us. And you know, Fama French um, in the, in the mid '90s and, and Jeremy beforehand, you know, popularized this idea of this book to market factor, which is important. It's not that it doesn't matter. Right to take the converse, two companies with a lot of IP, but one has a huge real estate portfolio and a huge cash hoard, and the other doesn't. Of course, that company should be worth more than the, than the other one. So you don't want to like not use this. It's just that you know we can maybe do better by by adding additional uh, dimensions of, of of risk and dimensions of corporate performance to our kind of milo of factors. When you think about this um, and what you've created. Is is your model just the model and it finds the companies and then you just, you know, balance rebalance quarterly like, like a smart beta fund? Or are you are you putting a little bit of finger on the scale? No finger on the scale. So I mean my involvement's only as a researcher, kind of setting up the parameters of the model, figuring out what data sets to, to look at and how to build the machine learning uh, uh, you know infrastructure. But you know, it's it's all systematic. It's all data driven, right? Every day, you know, new information comes in about you know employee turnover, about you know cultures, co- corporate culture increasing, decreasing, you know, scandals in the media, right? All all the good stuff, new patents, new trademarks, and that kind of feeds into the models, and it automatically adjusts the relative rankings yeah. of stocks. And and how big of a universe are you able to comb through right now? And where do you want to get to? Well. We'll start with where I want to get to. Um, you know, I've actually just been w- working on a super interesting project, expanding um, the the universe of stocks to global. Yeah. So, you know, effectively, um, MSCI All Country World, um, IMI. So, like the nine thousand stocks or so. Um, right now, when you know, in terms of launching products, the ITN ETF is focused on the top one thousand largest U.S. stocks, so U.S. large and mid cap stocks. But obviously, that that's not. There's no um, kind of technological reason why that was the case. We just wanted to start with a product that you know most people could kind of get their heads around. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, um, it was more kind of like the methodology of intangible value. You know, you don't have to share secret sauce here or anything, but, you or, know. Or f- feel free to. So. Or if you want to, yeah. We're not, What's we probably in the prospectus, alpha. right? We won't stop you. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, you mentioned that you use alternative data. I'm guessing it's higher frequency data, uh, NLP techniques to, to put some, you know, um, context around it. So do you need to use alternative data? Could you, you know, substitute more traditional, like balance sheet data or financial statement data for that? Uh, how far would you get if you did do that? Or is the is the really the value add the NLP and the uh, alternative data? So, so we use both traditional accounting based information and um, alternative data. And we actually have, I can give you a very clear answer. So if you look at like the performance historically of say the MSCI, you know, value index, right? It, relatively, the market's been pretty bad. 
you know, as you point out, the past 15 years. If instead you say, well, well let's now allow the capitalization of intangible investment. So R&D, you know, as you kind of invest R&D, you build up a balance sheet asset for that, and then you depreciate it over time. Same for sales and marketing expenditures. Well, you get a line that's a little bit less bad, but still no panacea, right? It still goes down. Um, and then when we said, well, let's start adding, you know, more sources of data, like I mentioned patents, I mentioned uh, LinkedIn, you know, to measure each of the pillars using unstructured data. And that's when the line starts to, to look pretty interesting, right? And, and if you look at the, just the names, so put aside even the historical performance, because that's just a back test, is the names, you know, change dramatically as you kind of continually iterate and add more and more data sources to a portfolio that just looks more like what it should look like, right? Like if you, if I said like first principles, build me a portfolio of companies that are, you know, attractively valued relative to prodigious intangibles, right? That, that portfolio look a lot more like the result of having added alternative data than just making this simple accounting-based uh, changes. It seems to me that, um, you know, most people would hear this and go, I get it. It's kind of like tech stocks, right? They, they don't have a lot of machinery lying around. They're mostly intangible value. But there are some companies here that aren't tech, right? So just let's just go over how these are intangible value. Uh, Wells Fargo and General Electric, those almost seem more traditional value. Right. Well, I mean, G in particular, it's, it's mainly the brand that's kind of carrying that, that company. Wells Fargo, like many banks, has obviously a, a large balance sheet, but for them, it's probably going to be human capital, um, you know, that, that uh, is its main contributor. And I've actually done this work. It's kind of quite interesting because, you know, even if you look at the website for ITAN, we do this analysis where we do a balance sheet decomposition. So we take all the stocks in, in, in the portfolio and assign it to a single pill, pillar. So, for example, like a clear example would be like Nike or maybe Harley Davidson would be clearly in brand, right? And then you have like Pfizer or like AMD clearly in IP, and then you know Goldman might be in might maybe in be in on finance, uh, might be in human capital, right? And when you do that, it, it the balance sheet is you know, yes, you know IP that pillar ends up being about forty percent, but it's closely followed by human capital, brand, and then tangible being the least important. Um, so it, it is a kind of relatively diversified portfolio across you know a variety of different pillars. Okay, so if we've got your model and it's this heat-seeking mi- missile to find intangible value out there, how do you weight this in a portfolio? How do you look at Wells Fargo or GE and go like, I'm, we're going to, uh, what's the exposure to them? Wells Fargo has a 1.5% weight and GE is a 1%, but Apple's a 4%. Yeah, or Amazon or Meta. Like, how, you know, if right. your robot gets to do what it does, <laughs> like, how do you decide who gets what percentage? Yeah, look, it, it, it's... And how much does it change over time? So the, the methodology is consistent through time. That does not change. Um, currently, what we're doing is there's always a trade-off in, in the quant world, as you know, Chris, which is, you know, you have too few stocks and it ends up becoming like all driven by idiosyncratic risk. Oh, you haven't owned, you know, Twitter and then Elon texts something weird out and then, you know, you're done, right? Like, so you want to have a certain amount of diversification um, to protect against that. But you don't want to be too many stocks. If you have a thousand out of a thousand stocks, it's basically just the index one at that point, right? So for us, we pick 150 as our cutoff. So it's like, you know, trying to strike a balance between being, um, you know, concentrated enough around this factor, but also having diversification on on the name sense. And then in terms of the weighting amongst those stocks, there's kind of two things that drive that. So the first is um, just the score, right? Higher scores get more weight. That's obvious. Um, The second thing we do, though, is this modified market cap weighting, right? And again, this is to deal with a trade-off. So imagine I were to create a, um, you know, market cap weighted version of the strategy. Just say, all right, well, like Apple has... 10x the market cap of stock, you know, two, so therefore it gets 10x the weight. Well, then you end up with like very little breath because, you know, especially these mega caps have become so large in indices, it's, you don't have much ability to kind of over and underweight. On the other hand, if you do equal weight instead, you end up creating this huge bias towards the size factor, 
right? Where like, yes, you have a lot of active share, but it's all just kind of like junk food, right? It's all just like, oh, you know, I, I just have a small cap. And so, you know, for better or worse, your clients are going to judge you against the S&P. And if, you know, as it has played out the past two years, right, equal weighted RSP, for example, has underperformed SPY, um, you know, you're going to look really bad. So we ended up doing this, this middle ground where we basically half market cap weight the stocks so that we can kind of like um, thread the needle between these two, these two challenges. Okay, so obviously there's a product in the 150, but if you have this data, there's the other side of the spectrum with the companies that aren't doing so good at this. Have you thought about building a product that combines the two? Yeah, look, I mean, the, we've looked at the short side as well, right? And if you look at like the, t- so we're looking at the top 15% and you short the bottom 15%, that actually works well, right? Historically in backtest, the, the short side, these things do underperform, right? Um, so in theory, there is a product around that. Of course, like if, if we're in the ETF space, it's a little challenging to do long short, especially on single names because it's transparent and people can kind of pick yep. you off. So that hasn't been our starting point. But, you know, I come from an institutional world, right? I used to run, um, you know, large hedge funds. And so that's totally like a product that could be available to the right uh, client. But as it turns out, most of our investor base, they like the beta. They like, you know, being, you know, long stock because yep. stocks go up over time. Yeah, this is really fascinating, this idea of how to make a factor strategy because the academics do long short. Because you're trying to isolate the factor. But when you do long short, you get a lot of offsetting. So your volatility goes down. So it's a nice, easy ride. But it never has like a shiny object moment. It never has like breakout performance. This is the problem with the Jim Cramer ETF. It goes long short. And in the advisor world, I think, unlike institutions, they need a little shiny object uh, moment. And Chris, you deal with this all the time. You do make long short indices. But clearly, when you're actually trying to package some of what you do into an ETF, um, marketplace decisions have to be made. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, Kai, you know, when you do long only, obviously you have that equity beta. And I think a lot of advisors, uh, you know, want that equity beta. You know, to me, with long short, you know, your, your real value add there is uh, lower correlation, significantly lower, lower correlation to traditional stocks and bonds. So if you're a traditional investor that has that already, I think that's really where long short uh, shines. But uh, long only factor investing is certainly, you know, uh, a good approach as well. Also, listening to Kai and going over the design of the ETF and all these decisions that, that, that are made, I would say you probably made 25 decisions somewhere, not to mention all the research. So we're talking like potentially 100 things that you could tweak that would make the returns different. That's why I think smart beta is active. It's just, it's just all the active is done in the design. It's like you're designing an active robot. Once you close the door and like, you know, screw in the bolts, it's now a robot, but all of the decisions you made before you close the door are active. Would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. Even though you don't do any, you have no more control over it. It's like a R2-D2 now. Right. Yep. Uh, yeah. All the active decisions is, is upfront in the construction of the model. But then once you kind of finish that process, and as you say, you, you know, turn the key and you throw it away, then you know, it kind of runs on its own. And quants like the fact that the By the way, hu- just to clarify, R2-D2 active? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Very active. Yes. Not, well, you uh, heard him. He's yeah. coaching Luke yes. and stuff. I mean, yeah. he's pretty active. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, just yeah, it's not like a dishwasher. Yeah. That's like, like an index fund. So the, those, those <laughs> other ones that were on the on the rig, yeah, not, not R2-D2s. <laughs> I don't know what C3PO is. That's a whole different thing there. But R2-D2. Tangent. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, Joel, I, you know, these quants, they love the idea that the humans don't get involved. So, like, there's traditional active, like the uh, sort of fidelity active manager that you're supposed to trust with your money. They're a five-star manager. They're just good at picking stocks. Like, yeah. Peter Lynch, I went to the mall. I saw these kids lined up. I bought Nike. Yeah. 
th- this quants think that's all like BS. Yeah. No, it's they're like, like give me like, the data. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then let's get the humans the hell out of this because we're yeah. only going to screw it up. Yeah, exactly. but it's active. And I'll be on the golf course checking <laughs> in at the end of the <laughs> quarter. No, quants don't golf. Come on. <laughs> oh yeah, no, they might ski ball. Paddle, paddle, ball. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I'm curious, Kai, just about um, performance, um, because it's been, you launched in 2021, you're below, uh, share price is below then, uh, went way down, and then you've had a good year so far. Like when you try and make sense of it, what's been happening? Yeah. So the way we think about the strategy is against an internal benchmark of you know factor neutralized, um, you know stock stock performance, and you know on that on that metric, like we're actually quite happy with how things have unfolded so far. Like obviously you can't control the exact timing of launch and like what will unfold, um, you know, in, the, in a subsequent year or two. Like we launched um, June twenty one, right, right before you know a lot of tech stocks sold off. Mm-hmm. We actually you know did better than you know a lot of uh, innovation focused funds. Um, you might you might say, and then you know we've also enjoyed the ride up. Um, but again, like it's a pretty short period, so we don't want to like over index right. um, on any particular regime that we happen to have um, come into. I'll give them a shout. It's outperforming the value factor ETF for my shares and the S and P. Although losing to growth, but if you consider yourself somewhere in between, that's uh, I think it was up 18. Um, percent But you're right; the um, timing is crucial with these launches. <laughs> you launch right before a market downturn. It takes sometimes it takes a little while to come back, but it's all about relative performance as well. Yeah, and look, we're we're in this for the long run. Like I, I think just intellectually, we view this as the way that you know, the way forward for value investors, and so we want to have products in the market. But ultimately, the this is like a, a long game we're playing. When here. you when you were working on this and like doing the back testing, everything, what was the what was the thing that um, from a performance standpoint that really jumped out to you and we're like, we're on to something here. Well, I think it's quite interesting how you know, the, the in- individual pillars of this strategy kind of interact together. 
right? You think about, you know, IP is kind of the most obvious, right? It tends to be technology names. It tends to be, you know, some communications, me media companies. And you have, like, your consumer brands. And you have, um, you know, human capital tends to be very financial services oriented as well as technology network effects is more communication. But it's just interesting. They tend to be uncorrelated. They, they kind of play well together and, you know, contribute to an overall, um, you know, basket in, in a nice way, right? Like, you, you can have a company with, like, really strong IP, but if they have no marketing, like, that's not going to succeed. Mm -hmm. And like, vice versa. So you kind of need, um, you know, the collection of all these intangible assets to really be, be, be to really thrive in the modern day. Sure, very, very logical. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you real fast, uh, you know, this kind of goes with, you know, is intangible value a different factor, or how does it interact with other factors? You have a great quote. I'm just going to quote you. You say, "While the quality factor seeks firms that are profitable today, intangible value seeks uh, firms that are profitable tomorrow." And you have this fantastic graph. That shows, you know, that I believe it's like the difference in ROE is predicted by your intangible value factor. So, can you talk about some of like the interactions there and and, and how how that relationship is is possible? Yeah. So, if you step back, like what is um, what is quality today? It's what is the modern moat? It's an intangible asset. Like, why can you know um, Novo Nordisk charge so much money for Wagovi, Right. It's because they have a patent. Um, why can Hermes or LVMH charge so much for their handbags? Because they have these really strong like brands that they built. But how do you actually get those things? They don't come for free. You have to invest upfront in eventually getting those assets. So you know what is profitably, what is quality? Is looking for companies with those moats today, right? But oftentimes the problem being that those things are already priced by the market because it's pretty obvious. Whereas what's interesting about intangible value is you know we're looking for names that are kind of making the investments today in advertising or in R and D that will hopefully lead to um, that sort of moat down the line, and, and hence the uh, the ROE upgrade that, that comes in, in line with that, which is why, which is quite interesting, and I was surprised to find this, that the correlation between the quality factor and the intangible value factor are also zero. So it's not just with traditional value and intangible value, it's also intangible value with quality, um, which makes sense and it kind of, you know, as you think more about it, and kind of justifies why, you know, in a portfolio context, you'd want to have it slotted, the, slotted in there alongside the other, you know, more traditional. It's almost factors. like forward-looking profitability factor in right. some ways. Exactly. Yeah, it's quality of the future. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, so in the intro, Eric teased that you had this uh, conversation with Cliff Asnes. I'm curious, what did you what did you say that set him off? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so first of all, I have a ton of respect for Cliff um, and for AQR. Um, he is a legend. Um, so, but basically, the, the discussion was this, right? Which was, Cliff, um, you know, made the argument that um, the spread between the basket of stocks that are value stocks as opposed to growth stocks, so expensive price to book, um, or kind of a generational wides. And then, as a result of that, he said, therefore, we should expect um, outperformance of value stocks relative to growth stocks. It was kind of a two-phase argument. Um, and he did a lot of really interesting robustness checks to like adjust for various factors, like excluding the Magnificent Seven, like things like that. Um, you know, my you know my argument was kind of twofold. So first, I said, well, you know, on the definition of value, right? This goes back to your dark matter um, point, which is you know a lot of the, the the phenomena we've seen in the world can be explained by this um, by intangible assets. So for example, the fact that the U.S. has outperformed international stocks. Well, the U.S. has invested in more intangible assets. We have the best universities. We have the best global brands. We have, you know, so on and so forth. That kind of makes sense, right? It explains just the general um, absolute overvaluation of the market on traditional metrics. Well, if you don't adjust for all the investment we've made in these intangible assets, then yeah, of course, the market's always going to seem expensive. Um, and so I basically use that line of reasoning, you know, with some data, of course, to kind of show um, that, yeah, when you adjust, like, I think what Cliff showed was that the spread between value and growth stocks, um, you know, just headline number was like a two standard deviation, like really wide number. 
But once what I showed was that once you adjust for intangibles, it comes down to still being expensive, but maybe like 0.5. So within the range of noise. And that was kind of the second point, which was, you know, Cliff was arguing that, um, you know, a widespread should mean, you know, high perspective returns. And, you know, I actually looked at one of the papers that he wrote, uh, Cliff and his co-authors, um, a few years ago, where we actually showed that, you know, yes, at extremes it matters, but really within this middle band, it, it's kind of not statistically, you know, meaningful, right? So the, the conclusion being that, all right, well, if it's not that wide, then, you know, should we be really kind of pounding the table today? This is fascinating because what quants do is they take what's work for active, where they found alpha, and they turn it into beta. So like values said, oh, over the years, this person just outperformed because they just went to cheap stocks. So they're like, oh, we'll just make an index out of that. Bam. Now that's done. They did it with quality. They did it with, um, we'll say momentum. They did it with size. Intangible value does seem like that latest thing. Like what have the people been leaning on to get that outperformance in Mojo? Like how do you explain the Qs being the S&P all the time? Well, if you take intangible value, it probably does go in line a little more and explain it. It makes you think if this is a true factor and you've now captured it and turned it into beta, is there any alpha left? <laughs> like, um, what else can you there's, do? There's always going to be more alpha out there. Um, look, I mean, what we're trying to do is, is, as you point out, just like trying to <clears throat> capture what is it that a smart investor would do. Like a smart fundamental guy at, at like a top hedge fund, what sorts of things would they look at when they evaluate a company like Disney or NVIDIA? Right? These are just like kind of common sense things that to the extent where we can use AI, we can use all the new data available to make it into beta, to make it into a systematic factor, that's good. But then, you know, the, the, the smart guys, once this is table stakes, will find the next thing to lead on, right? And I have well, no, what's the next thing? I, I don't know. I mean, if I, if I knew, then, you know, it would be... <laughs> you a, wouldn't be, be here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Next thing is whatever, whatever <laughs> sequel to ISIS. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, we're going to leave it there. Kai, um, one final question. Uh, it's, a, it's a question we ask everyone on the, on the program. Uh, what is your favorite ETF ticker other than your own? Oh. Um, I know what he's going to pick. I just okay. know. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, I don't think I don't I don't think what my opinion is matters. I think what matters is what the market would say, mm. and the market would say META Meta. It's like an eight-figure ticker, right? <laughs> Answered like a true quant. <laughs> well, Meta is the is the ticker that was sold to Mark yeah. Zucker. Yeah, you're right. That is the most valuable ticker. Right. Mm. So well, I don't know why Will Hershey mm. is still working at Roundhill. Yeah, I don't understand that. Yeah, that was a that was a talk about a guy who should be on an island somewhere. Yeah. yeah. You're, that's a very smart answer, by the way. So, he, so here's my thing: if if Tim Cook wants to rebrand <laughs> Apple as ITAN, you, know, <laughs> you have the best ticker ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Kai, Chris, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Bye. How does Invesco QQQ rethink possibility? By rethinking access to innovation and the NASDAQ 100. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.